Vladimir Putin, the leader of Russia for the last 15 years, a capitalist dictatorship built on rampant criminality that's designed to keep him in power for as long as possible. Jean-Claude Duvalier is a dictator, an alleged thief and a murderer, accused of pillaging his homeland and draining its treasury. You get into power, you become the king or the president, you take money, you steal money, and you enhance your authority because what? That keeps you in power. It's a system of government in which political power is arranged so that people at the top, a very small group at the top, can steal the resources of the people and the state for their own benefit. These prime ministers and presidents of these countries that steal billions of dollars from their own people to enrich themselves. Criminality and money laundering and corruption. I always describe it, you know, really, really powerful people with really deep pockets. Such kind of legalized strategic corruption causes wars. If you're anything like me, you're probably feeling pretty overwhelmed and angry about what's going on in the world. Inflation is through the roof, gas prices are crazy, and now even buying groceries is becoming a luxury. You're probably looking for answers about why things are the way they are. Why did Russia invade Ukraine? Why are the economies across the world in ruin? Why is the world experiencing so much chaos? And why are we getting screwed over by insanely rising prices? It turns out, the answer to all of these questions is the same. Corruption. Let's go on a journey into the underbelly of the international corruption that happens every day. It's the undercurrent that fuels destruction and it's wrapped in death, drugs, sex, and most importantly, money. What's a guy like me doing in a story like this? It all started with a woman named Deborah La Pravat, sitting behind a desk at the FBI 25 years ago. Riggs Bank was one of the biggest banks in DC, and it doesn't exist anymore. 22 presidents banked there. They were knowingly laundering money for these countries. She spent her entire career chasing down bad guys while fighting kleptocracy. She has made it her life's mission to bring an end to the injustice inflicted on everyday people by power-hungry, corrupt political billionaires who are stealing money out of our own pockets, yours and mine. I met Deborah a couple years ago, and we ended up becoming great friends. She really opened my eyes to how corruption is affecting all of us. She is the female Indiana Jones. You may find it hard to believe, but everything I'm about to tell you is true. Some parts are so far-fetched, you'll think I'm making it up, and I wish I were. But the only way you'll know for sure is to hang on tight and listen. In this podcast, we talk to Deborah and her worldwide network of friends and colleagues who have assisted her over her 25-year career. And in case you're still not convinced that kleptocracy is the undercurrent that controls our world, the process of putting this podcast together uncovered the daily threat that it poses. The guy with the shotgun does put it to my head and said, just stay where you are. We had no idea what was about to transpire, but it turns out that it all ties into the war in Ukraine. Every week, every day, we are waiting for invasion. We have the calendar already of invasions. We're joking about that because there is no other way to, to survive. Uh, in the circumstances where uh, every second day top leaders of international governments are saying that 
Oh, invasion is going to be at 3 a.m. on February 16. So we are uh, advising all our citizens to depart Ukraine. Many people told me before the war started that I'm very likely in the kill list of Putin and that I have to go abroad. I'm Justin Shankaro. This is A Nation for Thieves. First time we spoke, I really was just completely enamored by your upbeat, optimistic enthusiasm. I think we had like a two-hour conversation about kleptocracy and so many of the cases that you've worked on. And I was just a sponge soaking it up, rich business people, uh, nepotism, helping their kids, government officials. But then you really illuminated how there are these prime ministers and presidents of countries all around the world, many of them that steal billions of dollars to enrich themselves. And I thought that was an absolutely fascinating topic, and I wanted to learn about it. I have a question for you. Why did you call me in the first place? Right? Like, <laughs> I mean, what, what happened? This is Deborah LaPravat. When I say international FBI corruption agent, what are you imagining? Well, scrub that image out of your head and replace it with a statuesque, athletic, sparkling, blue-eyed, sun-kissed, blonde-haired mom from Virginia who has spent 25 years finding and fighting bad guys. You know, we don't live in the same city, right? That's uh, right. You know, you're, we're 3,000 miles apart, and I'm one of 14,000 FBI agents. And so when somebody says, hey, you know, I want to talk to you, I'm like, why? <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay. How did it start? What did you hear? What did you see that made you want to reach out? Well, I was riveted by kleptocracy. You talked about it. I heard you speak about it. And I'd never heard about it before. I'd never heard the word kleptocrat. I'd never heard of kleptocracy. I've heard of government officials, you know, stealing money from their people to enrich themselves. I think all of us have heard about that. Mostly, I kind of thought about it in the U.S., so that's why I reached out to you, because you started the kleptocracy department in the FBI. So I was talking to the hero, the, the woman who started this entire department, and I, I just wanted to, to pick your brain. I laugh because uh, when you first reached out to me, of course, the first thing I did was check you out. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> he was a child actor when he, he started acting. I think he started acting at age six, but uh, he was on the show Picket Fences when he was a kid. And of course, I watched that. I love that show. And so I knew who he was. Uh, at least I knew that part of his acting. I'm an FBI agent. I can find stuff out. <laughs> and so I, I took a little deeper dive and... I have to say, I was truly impressed, right? I mean, he speaks Chinese. For anybody who studies languages, it's a very difficult language. He went to Stanford. He has an MBA. The more we, you know, we got to know each other, we have very like minds in many ways. So it's just been a pure pleasure to get to know and then to work with Justin. The ideas of... How do you get kleptocracy out to people? How do you get them interested? You know, there are a lot of people, especially if you're in the D.C. metro area, of course people are going to be interested because they work for the State Department, they're law enforcement, they're politicians. Somebody asked me once in one of my cases, how am I going to make a woman in Ohio care? You know, she doesn't know where South Sudan is. And I said, well, in some respects you're not because 
she doesn't know where South Sudan is. She doesn't know there's two Congos. It doesn't impact her daily life to their knowledge. The point is, how do we share this information so that people really understand that it does impact you? When you find out that money is being laundered, that maybe the bank that you bank at is actually owned by a drug cartel or was used to launder money, then it starts to hit home. Riggs Bank was one of the biggest banks in D.C., and it doesn't exist anymore, right? It got bought by PNC Bank because they had corruption scandal after corruption scandal. Once the most important bank of the world, 22 presidents banked there in the past, and it's not there anymore. They were knowingly laundering money for these countries. There are enclaves in Dhaka that are where the wealthiest people, who also happen to be some of the corruptest people, have fabulous apartments, penthouse apartments. They have really nice cars, sort of like doormen building. But then a few blocks away, it, it's literally corrugated steel shanty towns where people are struggling to live. Bangladesh is actually a wealthy country. It's rich in natural resources. It has natural gas. It has a very, very hardworking population, a striving middle class. You see the impact of corruption because that wealth is just not being shared on the, on the most basic level. You wander around the streets of Nigeria and the people are amazing, but there's like electricity for four hours a day. And there's still open sewers in parts, you know, the town. The infrastructure's half done, the roads are not built properly to the right standard because somebody skimmed off a load of money so the contractors only laid down half the tarmac that they were going to lay down and therefore the road's, road's a bit of a dodgy road. And then there's this woman with seven cases full, full of jewellery that she just probably wears some of it once and never wear it again. It's kind of wrong, don't you think? Billions of dollars have been laundered through real estate in just the last five years. Get this, dirty money from Venezuela has propped up the Miami property market. Even the FBI building in Seattle is owned by a kleptocrat from Malaysia. And this doesn't just affect the US. In London, there's a circle of properties owned by oligarchs and kleptocrats. It's so bad that it's nicknamed London grad. More than $2 billion worth of house value is concentrated within a two-mile radius. The owners? Mostly overseas, and the property held anonymously. London is such a hotspot for dirty real estate that you can even hop on a bus tour of the mansions bought with stolen kleptocrat loot. The guide will tell you that it is the most corrupt place in the world. Valuable property across the world is being snapped up by international kleptocrats. Money straight out of their own country's resources, including in Washington, D.C., right under the nose of U.S. federal politicians. All right, Debbie, so tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get into the FBI? My high school was an amazing high school because all of our parents were military. Right. And they all worked at the Pentagon or Andrew Air Force Base. And so more of the students at the academies, the West Point, uh, the Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, 
my high school sent more kids to the three academies than any other high school in the United States. My ex-husband was a West Point grad uh, and my high school chemistry partner. We have amazing people, and they either went into the military. Like, I walked into the FBI in Washington field office, and I looked at a girl, and I went, Fort Hunt? She goes, class of 78. I'm like, class of 79. <laughs> and um, my high school track mate and college roommate, Jeannie, retired as an assistant director at the CIA. Another friend of mine was a courier for the CIA. My friend leaves at Commerce. And so we all, a lot of us went to go work for the government. My friend Celia Forcruz, she and I ran track together. She went to West Point. She was the first woman to graduate from West Point whose father had gone to West Point. And she was the first Filipino female to graduate from West Point. And Cookie is amazing. That was her nickname, Cookie Forcruz. She went on to be a, a kick-ass helicopter pilot and was doing rescue missions and is an amazing woman. Wendy Lawrence, class of 1977, became an astronaut. This is just some of the graduates. Carl Perkins, 72, member of the House of Representatives from Kentucky's 7th Congressional District. Wow, Admiral James Winfield, class of 74, vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You should see my Facebook page on Memorial Day. It's photographs of tombstones of our parents who served in the military. All of my friends, like my best friend Donna's dad was a captain in the Navy. My best friend Margie's dad was a pilot. All of our parents were military because that's who lives that close to D.C. at the time. That's so unique. I mean, I've never heard of a story like that. My high school uh, parents worked in kind of the Hollywood industry as producers or they were actors or they maybe worked at a restaurant, you know, or perhaps they worked in insurance or real estate. So this is really unique. It's so interesting because they all had interesting careers, but they were driven. They were driven to give back and to do service. And so that's why you see they're working for FEMA, they're working for Commerce, they're working for law enforcement, they're working for the CIA. And then things I didn't know as a kid, but uh, my best friend Donna's Italian and the Pacinis would be over. Well, I didn't know when I was a kid that Mr. Pacini was the head of the DEA. It doesn't come up at dinner, but I found out later. I'm looking even here, West Point. I mean, there are too many that I'm not even aware of to talk about. I mean, West Point is harder to get into than Harvard. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about West Point? It is the Army Military Academy, and it is very, very difficult to get into. More of the students going to the Naval Academy, West Point, the Army Academy, and the Air Force Academy come from my high school back in the uh, 70s than any other high school in the U.S. From West Point, from what I know, you actually, I think, have to have a member of Congress write a letter of recommendation. Is that right? Yes, you do. And it is hard. My ex-husband, we were best friends at the time when he was at West Point, so I went to his 500-day ball and his 100-day ball. West Point's hard, you know. What do they do there? And can you kind of describe the school and what the academics are like plus the military? Well, it's military training on top of hardcore academics, and so there is no light days. I mean, you're up. Seven days? Yeah. I mean, you might get a day off, but doing that day off, you're doing your laundry, you're doing this, you're doing that. So it's just four years of very intense training. Debbie studied exercise science at George Mason University in Virginia. Okay, so you are at 
George Mason, you're running track. And then where do you go? What do you decide to do in terms of your career? Well, it's funny because I was in sweats all day anyway, and George Mason did not have a marine biology program, which is what I wanted to major in. So I went into sports medicine, like exercise physiology. I spent a lot of time at the gym at George Mason, either in classes for exercise phys, kinesiology, and other health science classes. So I graduated as a exercise physiologist, and I went to work in the health industry. I worked for Holiday Spa, which became Bally's Fitness. I worked for the YWCA in D.C. Went to work for the YMCA. The gym, young men. I got married when I was working uh, for the YWCA, and I went down to Norfolk after I got married. You were and, pretty young. How old were you when you got uh, married? Uh, 27. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. And I went to work for the YMCA. I saw that there was an opening at the Norfolk Naval Base. I applied as the fitness director and got the position. So for the next six years, I was the fitness director. I just have to ask because being a fitness director of a, of a gym and then deciding to go to be the fitness director of a Naval Academy, that's a big jump. I mean, I would never think of doing that. So how did you even decide to make that leap? I wanted to do more and I found out that there was an opening and so I applied and, you know, it, it was completely different, but it's still running programs, right? Running the gym, making sure equipment is there, that it's clean, it's operational. I laugh because I would see admirals, but in sweats. I'd still say, good morning, Admiral Claris, but I could ask them questions that other people couldn't. Myself and a captain would approach a door and we'd both hesitate because as a gentleman, he would open the door for me. And I'm like, no, sir, you outrank me. I'm getting your door. There'd be that momentary pause of who's going in first. I'm like, no, sir, you're going in first. I was the only woman fitness director, and most of my coworkers were males. I was going to one of my buildings down by the carrier pier, and I was moving a life cycle from one gym to another. A life cycle is like a bike? Yeah, or a, a life cycle bike, an exercise bike. And so I had to get through a vestibule where I had two doors. So I open one door, I'm holding it with my foot, I'm moving the bike in, I set it down, I go to a second set of doors, I'm trying to hold the door with my foot while I move the bike, and I look over and there's a desk, a sign-in desk, and two limited-duty sailors are sitting at the desk, and they're limited-duty because maybe they've hurt their back or hurt their knee, and so they can't be on board ship. And I look over, and I realize that it never occurred to either one to come help me. So I look at them and I go, no, don't get up. And they looked at me like we weren't going to. And I'm like, yes, I know. <laughs> that was my point. And so I got the life cycle into the gym. But that day I said, I'm surrounded by mediocrity and I don't want to be. There must be some place where I can go to work every single day where I'm surrounded by excellence. And don't get me wrong, because I am a huge fan of the United States military. I love our military. That one day I said, this isn't where I need to be. So that afternoon, it was the 90s, I went to the library. What's that? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> hey, I was looking for the card catalog, you know? And the girl looked at me like, it's on a computer. I checked out every book, like Kessler's books inside the FBI, you know, the history of the FBI. And I went home and I read them all. Weeks later, you know, I discussed it with my husband at the time and I, I said, you know, I really want to be an FBI agent. And so I applied and I test very well. 
you know, I passed the first set of tests. I got called back for a second set of tests. I go in later for a series of interviews uh, where they're testing your honesty, your integrity, uh, your ability to encapsulate and summarize a crime scene. Right now, like 20,000 people a year apply to be FBI agents, and we hire about 1,500. It's not easy to get into. In October of 1995, I got a letter that says, congratulations, you've been accepted to the FBI Academy. I remember driving on to the FBI Academy, seeing the sign that says, welcome to the FBI Academy, and thinking, oh my gosh, I made it. There are still days where I'm like, how did I get in? But I'm very grateful. <laughs> I could not have found a better career for whatever my skills are, but it was a perfect fit. What was it like you enter, what's it, is it Quantico? Yeah. Uh, the only reason I know that is because of the NBC show. Quantico is the FBI Academy, and it's so interesting because uh, there's certain parts, right? There's the FBI Academy where you go to class every day and you're learning constitutional law, and then later in the day you'll break and you'll go down to the gym for ground fighting school. At 2 o'clock, you're out on the firing range and you learn how to combat load a Remington shotgun, wow. how to shoot an MP5 machine gun. At the time, I had a six-hour. I now carry a Glock. Are you fighting with women or are you fighting with men? And what's that process like? They have us boxing. Ground fighting school, a lot of it is weapon retention. You're fighting men, you're fighting women, you're fighting everyone because it's real-life scenarios. So, of course, I'm fighting. There were times where it was unfortunately comical. Uh, I was fighting with my friend Bobby, and we were in weapon retention class. What is weapon retention class exactly? What does that mean? What you don't want to be fighting with someone, have them get your weapon and use it against you. So it is how do you, in a ground fight situation, how do you retain your weapon? My friend Bobby and I are wrestling. He's trying to get my gun. One of the instructors says, Debbie, wrap your legs around him and cinch him in tight, because if he's in tight, he can't reach your weapon. So I did. I put my legs around Bobby. I cinched him in. And then Bobby stood up with me attached. <laughs> and I'm like, I raised my hand to the instructor. And I go, excuse me, but my assailant is walking away with me. <laughs> and he laughed. And he goes, headbutt him. And I'm like, well, that's going to hurt. <laughs> and so, I mean, I didn't really knock Bobby out, but I, what they told me to do was hit him with my forehead because that's the hardest part of your skull and try to break his nose. Meanwhile, keep my weapon. I mean, are people getting bruised up during this? Are they oh, getting yeah. hurt? Some people get hurt, and you really don't want to get hurt because you might be recycled into another class and you've become attached to your classmates. Every weapon is likely to be in your arsenal, which is why we have shotgun training, we have uh, sidearm training, the machine guns, the MP5. That was the weapon of choice at the time. Had you worked with guns before? No. You know, other than maybe my dad taking me hunting once or twice with a 22 when I was a little kid, this was my first really introduction to firearms. It's interesting because you might be on the firing line, 50 people, you know, 25 on each side of you, and you're all fine. The target turns and you have to shoot. And uh, the guy next to you was a state trooper for eight years. All 50 of his shots were in the size of a baseball. (laughs) Mine were not. (laughs) And (laughs) so you look over and you're like, if you're going to throw a few, hit my target, right? You know? But you learn over the next, I mean, you're, you're shooting 250 rounds a day uh, when you're out on the firing line. 
And what's really interesting is you practice shooting with both hands because if you get shot in one hand, can you transfer your weapon and shoot with the other? If you're right-handed and your right hand gets shot, how are you going to do a, an effective magazine change? So how to put your gun in the crook of your knee, put in a new magazine, chamber it around, and then bring the gun back up. Hogan's Alley, Virginia is a whole little town that was built on the campus, and the Bank of Hogan gets robbed every week so that (laughs) (laughs) it's the most robbed bank in the world, uh, so that uh, new agents can go in and process a bank robbery crime scene, uh, interview the victim tellers. Around the corner from the Bank of Hogan, there is like a pawn shop or there is a boarding house. So if you're doing an entry on a boarding house, how do you enter where you're not in a window? Right? If there's windows along the staircase, how do you get up to the door that you need to enter where you're not silhouetted in a window that somebody in that window could see you? And you're learning. Um, there might be a vehicle that was transporting a minor for the purposes of illicit sexual encounters. You got to get the guy out of the vehicle. How do you get him out of the vehicle? How do you arrest him? They hire actors. I remember one of my classmates, he he was doing a fake arrest on a bad guy. We pulled a shotgun, and my classmate said, stop or I'll blast you. And the guy turned around and goes, go ahead, blast me. Well, then what are you going to do? You're going to blast him? No. You learn you don't say that. Like, you don't say freeze, right? How many of the people am I going to arrest who don't speak English? So what Mm. did I do? Say solidify it, sub 32 degrees? No. Freeze isn't a don't move. And you learn aggressive, assertive, don't move. Hands up, get back, step down, on your knees. And it's, your persona changes because now you're in charge. And what people don't realize is whether you're taking down a child pornographer or a bank robber or a vice president of a bank, you are about to put them in jail. You're about to change their life dramatically. Any of those can kill you. We had two FBI agents shot and others wounded last year to go do a search warrant on a suspected pedophile. He saw them coming up on his camera doorbell, shot them through the door probably before they had the opportunity to knock. And that day, two FBI agents uh, were killed. So this is your opportunity as a new agent at Hogan's Alley to practice How do I approach people? How do I be safe? How do I not get silhouetted in a door jam so that I'm backlit? How do I announce FBI, you know, boom, 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 search warrant? And uh, so that people know that we're entering their house, who's entering their house, that we're clearly marked as FBI agents. After I was in the field, I was transferred to a squad called Terrorism Special Ops. I was going to go to an espionage squad, and that supervisor, two days after I arrived, said, I have to give up an agent to this new squad that's being formed, and I don't know you. So, goodbye. (laughs) Okay, don't unpack my box, and I'm now on this squad. Okay. For the next two years, I was on terrorism special ops, but what was amazing is the training that I got. You think you uh, can be, you can surveil somebody and not be seen, but what they teach you is like no makeup, no nail polish, like no red nail polish because it might draw attention to you. You want to be gray. You want to be the person nobody notices, nobody sees. And my blonde hair, 
we would be on surveillance activities and then there would be counter surveillance. We'd be debriefing at the end of the day. And who did you see? And they said, well, I saw the blonde girl twice. So then you take steps to avoid that, right? I, I'd put on a hat, but like, is it the summer? Then it's a baseball cap. And is my hair up under my hat or is my ponytail sticking out? I had a sunroof and with the light coming through my hair shone like a beacon. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, what you learn is like, okay, uh, baseball cap, no makeup, no nail polish, drab clothes. So you enter Quantico, the FBI Academy, and you have a six-year-old daughter at the time. What was that like to leave her? And how old were you when you came into the FBI? So FBI agents have to graduate from Quantico no later than your 37th birthday because our mandatory retirement age for agents is 57, and they want to get 20 years out of you. So I turned 35 at the FBI Academy. Leaving my daughter was the hardest part because she was six years old and I'd never been away from her since her birth, except, you know, maybe like a week for a vacation with my husband. Uh, But I called every single day. So every night I would call before she'd go to bed and talk to my daughter. And except for the first two weekends when I wasn't allowed to go home as a new agent, I was allowed to go home the other weekends. So when my class ended at 5, 5.15, I was in my car driving to Norfolk. And it's uh, like three-hour drive. And then I'd get there, tuck my daughter in, spend the weekend with her, and Sunday evening, drive back, ready for class Monday morning. Can you take us back to the day where you graduated Quantico? Your daughter's there, is your husband there? That was an interesting day because um, while I was at Quantico, I realized that my husband wasn't so gung-ho about me being an FBI agent. It was two weeks before graduation, and I just realized he's not coming. He didn't wow. call me to say, like, like when I call my daughter every night, he didn't say, okay, like, how do I get on to Quantico? Where do I park? And so I called my mom and my dad, and I said, I want my daughter at my graduation. So my mom and dad picked up um, my daughter, and she was there. My best friend Donna Minacci and her husband were there. And that's who came to my graduation. So I graduated, and uh, two weeks later, I reported to my first office in Detroit, Michigan, The first day there, I was served with divorce papers. It's funny, I talk to young women and they're like, oh my God, I'd love to be an FBI agent. I'm like, are you married? Yes. Is your husband in law enforcement? No. I'm like, oh, it'll ruin your life. (laughs) And they're like, what? And I said, I had 15 women in my class at Quantico. Three of us were married. All three were divorced within one year of graduation. Why do you think that is? Was it just disempowering for your husband? What are your thoughts on? You know, that is certainly part of it. I would come home and my husband would feel like my success somehow made him less. And I never understood that. I said, if you don't love what you're doing, then tell me what do you see as your best life and let's do that. Instead of feeling happy for me, he felt sad for him. And and that was sad. But I'm clearly, I'm not alone in that, right? Like mm-hmm. I said, the other two women were divorced within a year of graduation. Then I had to fight for custody. But it was a battle because I was moved, the FBI moved me to Detroit. My first year with the FBI was one of the saddest years of my life. I moved with my daughter. Uh, the state of Virginia made me return my daughter until it was litigated. How long were you away from her? I flew every other weekend for the two years I was in Detroit to see my daughter. Somebody could look at you and say, well, why didn't you just quit? I go, and and do what? 
go back to being a fitness director. Plus, I couldn't go back to a husband that wouldn't uh, support me in a career option when he said he would. I mean, again, I went to him first and said, you know, I'd really like to be an FBI agent. Is this okay? He's a great dad. He has been a great dad to our daughter. But a lot of men don't want to be with a woman whose job is perceived as being more important or different than theirs. And the reality is it's not. It's just a different job. And it's a great job, but it's not for everyone. A job in law enforcement takes sacrifice because you'll miss birthday parties. You'll miss school things because there was a bank robbery or there was a bombing or there was a 9-11. It's not a nine-to-five job. In 2008, Debbie was called to the site of a Learjet plane crash in the center of Mexico City. A former narcotics and corruption prosecutor, as well as Mexico's Secretary of the Interior, who had come under scrutiny for abuse of power related to kleptocracy, were on board when the plane went down. They were both killed. The then-president of Mexico believed it may have been a cartel hit. There are moments in an FBI agent's life that does sound and look like TV FBI. Got a phone call one night, I think it was one or two in the morning, and it said Learjet crashed in Mexico City, killing eight on board, eight on the ground, 44 people injured. Uh, It may have been a cartel bomb on the aircraft. The president of Mexico has requested the assistance of the FBI to help determine the cause of the plane crash. Myself and several other agents uh, from the Washington field office all met at the airport. I flew down on the director's G5, and I watch Criminal Minds. They always have the G5 jet. (laughs) I'm like, how did we get it? So we flew down to Mexico City, and it was TV FBI. You know, we landed at the airport. We had FBI gear on. The president of Mexico said, I would prefer it if you didn't wear FBI gear. Why would he say that? That wasn't conveyed to us, but it could be that he just didn't want it out that he had asked at that time for international assistance. Right. Everything I had packed pretty much said FBI all over it, T-shirts, ray jacket. What's in the gear? Well, it's a hard hat. Am I going into a building? Is the building secure? Is there rubble? I have work gloves. I have leather gloves. I have gloves if I'm picking up body parts. My specialty was human remains recovery, and it was a plane crash where people were dead. I have a steel-toed black combat-type boots. You're walking through sharp debris, so you don't want anything that has jet fuel and human remains on it coming up through the bottom of your shoe and cutting your foot. And then tactical gear. What's the tactical gear? They're range pants, right? I have multiple pockets everywhere because I'm not going to be carrying a purse or anything, but I need a notepad, I need extra gloves in my pockets. If I were a tactical gear in the U.S., I have a hip holster, and then I have a tactical holster where I have a thigh strap, and it's farther down so that my bulletproof vest comes down. It would block where the top of my gun would normally be at my waist. So I drop my gun to a thigh holster, and that's part of my tactical gear. We show up, and they put us onto helicopters and they flew us out to a building. We land on top of the building. We carry our gear down, no elevator, to the crime scene. And you know, the crime scene, what you're looking at is horrendous. The Learjet crashed at like 6 p.m. the night before. It killed the eight people on board the aircraft. 
When it hit, it was full of jet fuel. It skid across the ground, wiped out vehicles. People were in those vehicles driving home from work. So now you have eight dead on the plane, at least eight dead in the vehicles. Millions of gallons of water to put the fire out have gone through your crime scene, which means now you have to trace the water to drains, to gullies, to sewers. Is any of my evidence washing away in all of this water? Our first mission was to start collecting the human remains. You're trained to do that. What does that feel like to be collecting human remains of somebody who just passed away in a, you know, an explosion on a plane? We're scientists, right? So the science outweighs the ick factor. It's like, I can't do anything for you now because you're dead, but what I recover may identify you for your family members. And, and that's what comes out first. If you've worked with dead bodies, then you see things like we're all made up of parts. So like in this particular scene, I had a hand trowel like a gardening hand trowel in my hand, and I was sifting through material because I'm looking for small body parts, fingers, elbows, toes, whatever. And I looked down, I went, oh, nostrils. And so I had someone's nose and part of their upper lip. Later I found four teeth and part of a lower jaw mandible. Each piece gets picked up, bagged, the location where it was identified, who recovered it, I did, and it goes to the medical examiner. Meanwhile, there were larger human remains, and those were picked up, put in body bags, and taken and to, to be x-rayed because we wanted to see if there was shrapnel or anything that would have indicated that there was a bomb on board. So for the next five days, we did human remains recovery because uh, you know who was on the plane. There's a manifest. Who died on the ground? There's no ID because their car went up in a ball of flame. We recovered a foot, and then that foot's protected because it was in a shoe, and so maybe there'll be good DNA that can be recovered from that. Meanwhile, another part of our team on the ground there mapped out the entire scene. We also had the National Transportation Safety Board. They were working hand-in-hand -hand with the FBI at this location. It's interesting because if it's an accident, they take over. And if it's terrorism, we take over. And what's the black box again? The black box is uh, the data information box that's found on aircraft. Learjet would say, there should be two of these. <laughs> and we've only found one. Right. And so we would find that and we'd find human remains. Do you ever feel your emotions take over? I mean, if, if I saw a dead body, I'd probably start crying or pass out. I don't, I don't even know what I would do, but it would be such a traumatic experience for me. Well, I can tell you, passing out and crying are not an option. <laughs> you know, that is completely frowned upon um, by the FBI. Uh, I, you know, it is what it is. I think uh, if you're okay with dealing with human remains, you're one of the people who volunteers to, to be trained on human remains recovery and how to recover, you know, whether it's post-blast investigations where you're recovering human remains after an explosion or other uh, horrific incidents like tsunamis, plane crashes, uh, train derailments. All of those things are when the FBI might be called in to do human remains recovery. So as a forensic scientist, you specialized in human remains recovery and human remains processing. 
the FBI sent me to Human Remains Recovery School, and then they also sent me uh, to Advanced Human Remains Processing School. So I was trained on not only how to locate and recover human remains, but also how to recover fingerprints from badly burned or decomposed bodies. And do you get called on frequently to use those skills? You would be surprised. In 2010, uh, a lone gunman approached one of the checkpoints at the Pentagon and, and opened fire. And he was shot and killed by two security guards. And the next thing I know, I'm getting a phone call to go down to the morgue and try to identify him through fingerprints because he might have an ID on him, but we don't know if it's a fake ID. So I was trained on how to fingerprint cadavers. And uh, so I went down to the morgue and printed him and we were able to identify and when you say identify, what does that mean? Are there are there bodies? Are they unclaimed bodies? Is this kind of like a John Doe and a Jane Doe situation? Well, it, it differs in each situation, but I will tell you, we got called uh, to assist a morgue once because they had 17 bodies in their refrigerator that had never been claimed or identified. And a lot of people are never identified. You know, people die without ID on them. Uh, they might be homeless. Maybe they got mugged. Maybe they're in the country illegally. So that there's no identification on them when they die. Nobody's reported them missing and nobody's come in to claim a body. So the morgue will make every attempt to identify who these bodies are so that they're not buried in unmarked graves. So they called the FBI's evidence response team at Washington Field Office and a team of us who had been trained in uh, fingerprinting cadavers went down to the morgue and we spent three days fingerprinting uh, these 17 bodies that were pretty badly decomposed and using different techniques, whether we're injecting uh, liquid into the fingertips to try to get a smooth, uh, firm surface. Sometimes we'd use like a blow dryer or warm water to uh, replump the fingerprint area. And worst case scenario, I actually get a scalpel and remove the skin from the tip of the finger, place it over my gl own gloved finger and print it that way. And, you know, that's how we work to identify these 17 bodies. And I'll tell you, after three days, I called my daughter and I'm like, hey, look, we need to go out to dinner because I can eat dinner, but I can't cook dinner. And so we went out for Chinese food. Deborah sees more than $1 billion from power-hungry politicians. She went on to become the lead authority in international money laundering recognized by the FBI as the top expert on tracing and restraining dirty funds. Snakes, drugs, super yachts, luxury cars, jewelry, mansions, even breast implants, and suitcases stashed full of cash. Deborah has chased it all down. Then one day in 2003, I get a phone call from DOJ. And they said, Debbie, FBI in San Francisco has arrested Pavel Lazarenko. He's the former prime minister of Ukraine. They're prosecuting him for money laundering, interstate transportation of stolen property, and some other things. But they only put $40 million in their criminal complaint. Would you go after his other $300 million? Hmm, that's bigger than all my other cases put together. Okay, yeah, uh, um, I'll help you. That's coming up on A Nation for Thieves. 
A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankro, with Deborah La Pravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah La Pravat. Audio courtesy of CNN. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. For more information, go to lionsgatesound.com. 